Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 29 of the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. This week, we're going to be covering arterial issues. But before that, we've got a whole lot to talk about. First, I want to make sure, because I keep forgetting to do this, to say thank you to all of you who have been leaving iTunes reviews. I think we're up to 400. Here, let me just check real quick. Yeah, the number is 432 overall reviews in the iTunes store. And I know it's a pain in the butt to leave a review over there, let alone to write one is even harder. So I do appreciate the fact that you go over there and fill out the form and leave reviews. It really, one, it makes me feel good about myself and about the show, but it also shows other people uh, that the show has value, that you can trust it, that you can trust me because I can't adjust these. So when I put out you know, testimonials I get from people who email me and say, oh, I passed the pants. Your book was so helpful. I really loved all this. When I send those out or people see me post those, you know, obviously I can, I could reword them. I could change them. I can make them up. But here on iTunes, I can't, there's no way to do that. So it really helps to boost the community's trust of the show, which is obviously extremely important, both for you and for me, that people can trust the information coming out, that they can feel comfortable with what I'm doing here. So thank you so much for that. There's no good way for me to reach out to you once you leave an iTunes review. There's no way for me to reach out to you once you leave an iTunes review. So I just want to stop here and say thank I also can't read any of the names here to read them off on the air because they're <laughs> they're just mostly letters strung together. My favorite one, though, is not easily impressed one exclamation point. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, and a five-star review from them. So thank you. But there's, a, there's just... Uh, so I just want to say thank you for all of you who have left five-star reviews and who have left uh, written reviews even more so. I know it's a pain, so I do appreciate that. Now, before we get into the material for today, uh, covering arterial, arterial issues and wrapping up cardiology, I wanted to I have a couple of things that I'm really excited about and I really wanted to share with you. So let's just start with the first one. The first one is that the Rutgers MyCME review course has just been completely updated and revised. So they just came out with a new edition for that. And they asked me to go take a look at it. And since my exam's coming up, this is my fifth year, so I have to take it either this year or next year. I said, great, I'll go take, I took a look at it. I didn't go through it all in amazing detail, but I flipped through it and it looks so much better. Um, I, a lot of my complaints that I sent to them initially on the last version, some of the audio wasn't great. Uh, half the video, half of the lectures had video. Some didn't. The way that you jumped through the material was okay. It wasn't. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. This really looks like they made a move to update to 2018. It looks to me. I didn't go through every video. All the videos I went through had. You could view the slides that were recorded as the, as the lecturer spoke, or you could view the lecturer speaking, which is really nice that you can kind of switch views really easily. Uh, the sound quality was significantly better. I, again, I didn't go through every single video, but last time I remember specifically having trouble with some of the sound quality, and that's something I'm particular about, and I have trouble listening for long periods of time if the sound stinks. So I was really, I uh, thought they'd done a really nice job of that. So I wanted to just mention that because I know a lot of people use that course. It's the course that I use for my pants. It's the course I use for my panry. It's the course I'm going to use for my second panry. And here at Physician Assistance Exam Review, you guys get a discount on Anything you buy through MyCME, who's the parent company that makes the Rutgers course, and anything you buy through there using the code PAER10 gets you 10% off. It also, I'm an affiliate for them, so it also gives money back to the show here so I can keep the lights on and keep things working, keep things running. So it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, I, like I said, I love the program, so it's very easy for me to recommend it under that pretense. 
But if you head over there to uh, my CME or look up Rutgers course, uh, Rutgers PA course, whatever, Rutgers pants, it'll pop right up. And you can, again, type in PAER10 at checkout, and that'll really make a big difference here for the show, but also get you 10% off. Uh, so in addition to that, what's really cool is they gave me one copy to give away to my listeners, to this community, which was amazing. And I'm really thankful for that. So what I decided to do is put together a giveaway, but not just include the Rutgers Review course, which is what they gave me. I decided to also include a whole bunch of other stuff. So pretty much anything I could find, <laughs> I wanted to put in there for you guys. So so I'm going to be giving away one, one Rutgers Review program to the winner, and I'll explain how you enter and how you win. But I'm also going to be giving away my No More t- Test Anxiety Package, my Maximize Your Time and Efficiency course, my ID Cardio and Psych Activity books, a three-month subscription to the Exam Master Question Bank, and then also a 30-minute coaching call with me. And I never do private coaching calls. I don't even pick up the phone when my mom rings. You could reach out to her and ask her because um, I hate getting on the phone <laughs> in general. But I know that a lot of people have been asking for personal specific help. So I'm going to go ahead and throw that in as well. So all in all, it's going to be great. But this is one package I'm giving away. And the way that you enter is really, really simple. All you do is you head over to Physician Assistant Exam Review backslash give. I wanted to make a giveaway, but then I didn't know if he would be able to spell it and be a problem. So if you do backslash give, right now the page is live. If you head right over there, you can hop in. All you do is you can read through uh, all the material there that you, you that you could possibly win, the, the amazing package that I've put together. And if you scroll down to the bottom, it asks you a simple question to make sure that you're a real person. And then you put in your email address. Now, the cool thing is, is how this works is then you get sent a URL. I think they call it your... I forget what they call it, but a a, a special URL that's just for you. And anyone who signs up through that URL to the giveaway will get you three more entries. So at the final drawing, you don't just get one entry, you get your one plus three for everybody who signs up through your link. Um, So it's pretty cool. So that way you can spread the word, you can let other people know, and you can increase your chances of winning this, uh, this amazing complete study package that literally has everything you could ever need to get through your exam, but also to get through PA school. This basically covers the whole the whole gamut, everything you could possibly need. And I know one question I would get is that, what if I'm a first year PA student and I don't need the exam master question bank yet? I know it's only good for 90 days, so I don't want it right now, obviously. Well, no problem. We'll deal with that. Uh, I'll happily keep track of you for the next two years and we'll set it up when you are ready for it. So nice and easy. So anyway, head over to a physician assistant exam review backslash or .com backslash give to go ahead and sign up for that and get your entries in. Uh, I'm super excited about being able to share that. And like I said, the course looks great. I'm very excited about what they've done with it. Uh, one more thing before we jump, jump into um, our arterial issues for today, I want to talk just a little bit more about the physician assistant. What was, what, what was the name we came up with and decided on physician assistant exam scholars. That's going to be the new division of physician assistant exam review that I am in the process of creating. And I'm super excited about it. I think you're going to really, really get a lot out of it. I'm going to be, it's going to start off as it's sort of, a, it's going to be a, uh, how do I explain this and have it make some sense? Cause the overall idea is that it's a place we can take this conversation deeper. It's a place we can talk about things that I can't get to here in the show that I can't get to in the email list. It's a place where I can 
uh, for example. We covered murmurs here, but I don't have time to go through in great detail how you answer questions on heart murmurs, uh, the best strategies for handling those questions. So what I would, or when we talk about the study tips in the show, how do we do things like, uh, let's see, what's, what's, a, what's a good topic? How we do things like question dissection and going through and analyzing questions. And I don't really have the space or the, the format here to do that. So I've created the separate division called Physician Assistant Exam Scholars, where we're going to go deeper, where we're going to have carry the conversation a little bit further, where there's going to be a little bit more community, where there's going to be a little bit more time to discuss some of those things. And that's going to start on April 1st. I'm going to open it up on March 15th, and it's going to begin with a physical newsletter. And the first issue is done, and it is, I absolutely love it. It's amazing. Um, I will go through with you uh, at a later date sort of what we cover in that and and what you're going to get out of that. But it's really cool. I'm su- I'm really excited about it. It's going to change the way that you study. It's going to change the way that you do things so much for the better, make things so much easier for you, uh, help you retain more information. And that'll be a place I can do a lot more of that. So that's going to become available on, what is it, March 15th. And that first edition is going to go out April 1st. I know it sounds all sounds kind of weird, and I'm not explaining it as well as I would like to. But if you head over to Physician Assistant, while you're over there signing up for the giveaway, if you head over to Physician Assistant Exam Review backslash new at the time of this recording, you will get all the information about what's coming for the Scholars Program. So go over and check that out again, Physician Assistant Exam Review backslash new. Uh, I'm really excited about what's going to happen over there. So go check that out. All right. I Now, <laughs> after all of that, if you're still with me, let's go ahead and jump into our priming questions. So since we're talking about arterial issues, can you list for me the symptoms of occlusion, the seven Ps, the dreaded seven Ps of occlusion? Those are actually really easy, but they would drive me nuts when I was in PA school. Now it's not a big deal. We'll talk about it when we get there. At what width does it start to make sense to operate on an abdominal aortic aneurysm? What's the size that we start thinking about making sense to operate? And we'll talk about why. What's the treatment for giant cell arteritis? What is the treatment for giant cell arteritis? And then I've got one more for you here. Describe the typical patient with an aortic aneurysm. Describe the typical patient with an aortic aneurysm. All right, so let's get started. Uh, Aortic aneurysm is where we're going to begin. This is an abnormal widening or ballooning of a section of an artery due to weakness in the wall of the blood vessel. Okay, so what happens is the blood vessel wall, the aorta, stretches out a little bit, right? These are just tissue making little tubes, and one area gets a little bit weakened. So the blood vessel wall weakens, and then the blood, the pressure from your blood pressure, right, pushing against it forces that little weakening out further and further. Every time your heart beats, it pushes out a little bit more. So it sort of creates this little ballooning effect where that area of the aorta or of the vessel just pushes out a little bit more. And over time, that stretches and stretches and stretches, right? Um, The abdominal aortic aneurysm is the most common, usually below the renal vessels and involving the bifurcation. That's a key one I'd probably mark down. Uh, A lot of your aortic aneurysms are going to be at the bifurcation, just for a place of high pressure. Greater than three centimeters 
is what we call an aortic aneurysm. So you can palpate it. You're probably not going to palpate the size. Ultrasound, we'll talk about that in just a second. But greater than three centimeters is sort of your number there. And I can't imagine getting a test question on that, but certainly easy enough to remember. And this will answer our first question. Usually this is men over 70 years old. Usually men over 70 years old. And you kind of say, hey, why is that important? Well, in your test question, you're not going to get a 16-year-old girl for an aortic aneurysm. Those are the kind of clues that you should hold on to for your exam. Things, things exactly like that. That's to me is, is incredibly valuable information for your exam, also for your clinical practice. You don't want to be, you know, is it possible a 13-year-old girl has an aortic aneurysm? I guess so, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Usually men over 70 years old. Causes and risk factors, damage to the blood vessels. So anything that causes damage, right? We're just talking about it's a weakened part of the wall. So if there's damage to that wall, that obviously can weaken it. Coronary artery disease, smoking is a huge one. Hypertension is a huge one, right? Think about long-term hypertension. If you have extra pressure going through those vessels, that just over time wears them down. Hyperlipidemia. And then also you can get some congenital issues. Marfan syndrome is one where you can certainly get weakened artery arterial tissue. Ehlers-Danlos is another one. Um, that's not quite as familiar to most people, but it's one where it's another connective tissue disorder. Where the easiest way I can describe it is your all of your connective tissue is super stretchy. I see lots of it in in my in what I do now, and I have a couple, actually one or two of the nurses I work with have this. And you can just kind of pin when you go to pinch your skin like at your thigh, you can pull it up like five inches off a, off off a person's leg who has Ehlers Danlos. It's kind of amazing. They just have super stretchy tissue, and over time, the arteries will get stretched out as well. Clinical presentation: most of these are asymptomatic and will be found on an exam. You may get some pain, some substernal abdominal pain radiating to the back. Remember, if you get that tearing pain radiating to the back, that's an aortic, that's a ruptured aortic aneurysm, which is obviously a major issue. But that's where you see that tearing knife-like pain radiating to the back. That's the key words there. You can get a hoarse voice secondary to constriction of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Right, you just get pressure on that nerve, so you can get a hoarse voice. You can get dyspnea, cough and dysphagia. Again, those are all mass effect issues. On physical exam, you can you might be able to feel that pulsatile mass for an, ab, for an abdominal aortic aneurysm. I don't know why I'm struggling with that word today. You may feel a pulsatile mass for an abdominal aortic aneurysm. That came out a little better. Labs and studies. Obviously, an ultrasound is going to be best for an abdominal aneurysm, but a thoracic one you're not going to be able to see as well with an ultrasound, so a CT, MRI, or you can do say aortography, which is you can inject some dye and take some x-rays and get a better picture of the vessels. Treatments. Blood pressure control is the number one issue. You got to get blood pressure down and under control, smoking cessation, and then surgery is the next one. Now you can watch these. A lot of times they're, I don't want to say a non-issue, but Let's say it's three centimeters to four centimeters. Well, the chance of rupture is incredibly small. I forget what it is off the top of my head, but it's really small from three to four centimeters. So you have an you have a, an aneurysm, but we're not going to do anything about it. It's not worth the risk of going in for surgery, right? There's always risks with surgery. So you have to balance those risks. So at the point at which they start to talk about the risk of rupture being great enough where it's worth going after them is about five centimeters. I think it's five to five point five or something or five point nine. It's five to five point nine centimeters. There is a five to ten percent chance per year of rupture. Now I don't think you need to know the details of that, 
But just to say that there's a five to 10% chance of rupture once you get over five to six centimeters. So at that point, it starts to become worth it to talk about going in and fixing it. Now, that may or may not be the case if you have someone who has had a couple of heart attacks, has, I don't know, whatever, diabetes, has all these other problems and issues, and they're 99 years old, and they have a 5.2 centimeter aortic aneurysm. You're going to balance out. It's a risk reward. You're going to balance out whether surgery is, is, is more of a risk or less of a risk than just watching this thing. But five centimeters is sort of where we start to get interested in a surgical procedure, because again, you start to get to that five to 10% per year will rupture. So that's aortic aneurysms. Let's go to giant cell arteritis. This is an inflammation of the arteries. So just like any other part of your body, you just get an inflammation, right? So if you think about it that way, the treatments and things become a little bit easier to understand. This is not super mysterious. This is the arteries get inflamed. The temporal artery is very commonly involved. So we call it temporal arteritis. Uh, is that term can be used interchangeably with giant cell arteritis. And this usually occurs in patients older than 55. Again, I'd be highlighting that, that information. To me, you're not going to get a 16-year-old boy who comes in with temporal arteritis. It just isn't going to happen. You get a little old man or a little old lady pictured in your head as the person who's going to be coming in with this. Something else to note here, 50% will also have polymyalgia rheumatica, which is a situation where you have an autoimmune disease that has multiple joint pain is sort of its its hallmark. You don't get pain in one joint, which is more like osteoarthritis. You have pain in lots of joints. It's something to keep in mind. So as you sort of have a, a crossover with some, uh, what do you call them, autoimmune diseases. Clinical presentation, jaw claudication is the one that you always hear about here. It's the easy key term to remember. Or, you know, even if these key terms don't show up on your exam, they help you to sort of almost have like a peg in your brain to hang this diagnosis on. So it's hard to keep these all separate in your head, right? You can't hold onto all of them just in their own little boxes that aren't labeled inside your brain. They all get jumbled and mixed up. Well, jaw claudication is a great key term to attach to giant cell arteritis to sort of have a peg you can hang it on. And like I said, that may not specifically come up in the test, but it might, and you might get really lucky, and it certainly does, but it may not. But even if it doesn't, using that key term to help you sort of to sort of peg giant cell arteritis to the wall using jaw claudication is much is a, a technique that I really like to use. So I think that key terms are incredibly important, whether or not you're using whether or not you see them on the exam. So shameless plug, the final step is always available, to, which covers key terms. Now, Jaw claudication is a pain in the jaw while chewing. So all this means is when you chew, you get this tired pain in your jaw, and that's a symptom of temporal arteritis because you're not getting enough blood flow there. You also can get headaches, scalp tenderness, visual problems include blurred vision, diplopia, complete loss of vision is a really bad sign, but it's on the list. And then you can get fevers. So again, just let me run back and, and, and push this a little bit harder if you look down the presentation list and I give you headache, scalp tenderness, visual issues, there's so many things that could possibly be in that. Like each one of those is a little helpful, but when you see like jaw claudication and visual issues or scalp tenderness, it really jumps off the page. And that's why those key terms are so valuable or that's why they are key terms is because other things don't have that. You know, if I just give you a headache, well, how are you going to narrow that down to giant cell arteritis? You're just, you can't. But if I give you just jaw claudication, you can zero right in on that. 
physical exam findings, um, you can palpate the temporal artery and you may find nothing, or it may be tender, enlarged, or pulseless. You could do a fundal exam, um, something I could never do even in PA school, no matter how hard I look through that <laughs> through that thing. Ischemic optic neuritis with paler and edema of the optic disc. Also, here's a great one, uh, scattered cotton wool patches and little small hemorrhages. Labs and studies, you're going to do some blood work. The ALKFOS may be elevated, so you're going to look up a liver function panel. C-reactive protein is going to be elevated, sed rate elevated, and platelets may be low. The gold standard for diagnosis is going to be a biopsy of the temporal artery. An ultrasound may show a halo sign. Treatment. Again, we talked about this being an inflammation of the arteries, right? So the treatment's really pretty straightforward. High-dose prednisone. Prednisone stops inflammation, right? Steroids reduce inflammation. So high-dose prednisone, 40 to 60 milligrams per day, which is a, a lot, for really for a month or two, followed by tapering. You always have to taper steroids because your body stops making them when you put uh, exogenous steroids into the body. Your body slows down its production, so you have to make sure you taper them when you take people off of steroids. But 40 to 60 per day, I would probably know that dose, or at least know it's it's you know kind of around there. Not you don't you know you don't have to know specifics, but knowing it's a high dose and knowing forty to sixty milligrams doesn't hurt, and it it really takes a lot to break through this, uh, and get this under control. Also, you're gonna want to put your patients on some some kind of antiplatelet, so an aspirin, eighty one milligrams per day. This will reduce the risk of stroke and blindness in these patients. Peripheral artery dis arterial disease is going to be our last one for today. This is also known as peripheral vascular disease or peripheral vascular disorder, PAD, PVD, or PVD. The cause is atherosclerosis is our main culprit here. We talked about that earlier in a previous show. Clinical presentation, uh, back to claudication, which is that term for painful, tired feeling. So this is in the legs, though. So when after walking significant distances, you get this sort of tired, drained, achy feeling uh, in the legs because you're not getting good blood flow because the uh, the arteries are, are are not holding up so well. You can get ischemia in the lower extremities. So this is kind of gross. You get numb, numbness, tingling, and ulcers because, again, the, the blood flow is an issue. You get erectile dysfunction. Once again, just purely a blood flow issue. On physical exam, you can get weakened pulses, right? Because we're not pushing blood down through. So the pulses are going to be weak in the legs. Dependent rubor, which is a what, something I discovered that I really like to say. Dependent rubor. Uh, this is when the foot is dependent. It turns dusky colored. You get atrophic skin, so hairless, shiny, and you can get these ulcers uh, in the skin. These are painful ulcers, and I think this is an, a nice one to be able to demarcate from our venous issues we talked about before, which are the painless ulcers. These are painful. And again, this is not 100% in every single patient, but it's for my exam, that's how I would remember them. And then you can also get some paresthesias. Now, in a worst case scenario for peripheral arterial disease, we get occlusion, right? So we can get an embolism that may occlude things, or we can just get such bad peripheral arterial disease that we get occlusion. So then you have the seven Ps, which are your presenting signs for occlusion. So if you have someone come in and they're absolutely cut off with arterial blood flow to a extremity, there are certain symptoms, right? So first of all, they could have pain. Well, that makes sense. They could have paler, which just means they'll be pale, right? Because if they're not getting blood, it's going to be white. Pulselessness, which again, makes a whole lot of sense. If the arteries aren't working, they don't get, you don't get a pulse. Paresthesias, 
which you go numb and tingly once you cut off blood supply, right? If you sit on your foot, it goes, you get some paresthesia. So this kind of makes sense too. Placolithermia just makes it a pee, but it just means cold. And again, let's cut off the blood supply to your leg. You get a cold leg and then paralysis follows the paresthesia. So those are our seven P's, which are kind of a pain in the butt when you think, I, I don't know, I some mnemonics drive me nuts because I spend more time working on the mnemonic than I do on the actual issue. It would be easier for me, it's e much easier for me to think about someone who comes in with the blood supply cut off to their leg. Now, what is that gonna look like? It's gonna be cold, it's gonna be pale, they're not gonna have a pulse, they probably can't feel anything, and they may be in pain, right? So if I see a patient come into the ER, with those symptoms, I'm going to be worried that their blood supply is cut off if it's in one leg or one limb or one foot or whatever it is. So the seven Ps are great, but sometimes it's much easier just to picture what the person would look like laying on a table or laying on a stretcher and use that to sort of help you along. At least for me, like I said, I can't just memorize the seven Ps. If I picture that patient laying on the on the, on the, ta on the uh, stretcher in the ER with an occluded vessel in their leg, it's much easier for me to, to actually come up with the seven Ps in reverse order and re-engineer the mnemonic. Labs and studies, uh, Doppler is going to be really, uh, really helpful, especially in those patients with occlusion. That's going to show us that there's just no blood flow, uh, but it will also show us how much blood flow. The determining factor for peripheral arterial disease, so if you're just in the, in the office kind of situation, the ankle brachial index is, is going to be your, your key here. So what you do is you take uh, blood pressure in the arm and then a blood pressure in the leg and you compare them right so normal they should be the ratio should be 1 to 1.2 so they should be about the same roughly the same um, or maybe a little higher in the legs than in the than in the arm but essentially the same so less than 0 0.9 is going to be diagnostic and less than 0 0.4 is severe PAD that's somebody whose whose blood pressure in the legs is extremely low compared to that in the arms uh, because of that peripheral vascular disease. Arteriography may be necessary and a CTMRI angiography to really get a handle on what's going on. But it's that ankle brachial index in the office or the Doppler if you're really scared. Treatments. Uh, lifestyle modification is going to be number one, including progressive exercise. So you're going to want to build up exercise over time in these people. Obviously cut down on all the things that will cause atherosclerosis. So anything that causes plaques, that's going to block those arteries and prevent the blood flow from going through so you're going to want to stop them from smoking. You want to get blood pressure under control, all those things. Medications, antiplatelet medication. So aspirin, 81 milligrams daily is going to help because we don't want to create clots in these now damaged and clogged vessels, right? So we're going to use aspirin to prevent those clots. You can also use an ACE inhibitor, which is a uh, going to help for a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons is that it's a vasodilator. So that's going to help increase blood flow to the lower extremities if you put them on an ACE inhibitor. You may need to do surgery on these patients. They may need endovascular stenting and angioplasties, depending on the severity of their disease and what vessels are clogged off. Uh, bypass grafting. So you can do aorta to femoral bypass. You can do femoral to femoral bypass if you have to just get around a particular area or an axillofemoral bypass uh, and all sorts of other things, of course. But major vessels can be used to bypass other vessels that are clogged off, just like you would do a coronary artery bypass. You can bypass the extremities uh, arteries in the extremities if those are the ones that are clogged, right? So that makes sense. Uh, you don't have to know the details there, but certainly just to understand that there are things we can do to shunt the blood past blocked areas. This, these are obviously not great solutions because, you know, someone who gets a coronary artery bypass, bypassing the clogged arteries, is it gives them 
obviously improves their life and saves their life and makes it so that they can function, um, but it doesn't solve the overall problem. It's those lifestyle modifications that are going to really be the big difference maker. All right, great. So that ends our discussion of not only arterial issues, but also cardiovascular, the whole topic. I think we just, or not, I think we did just complete the entire thing. So that's really exciting. I have no idea what topic I'm going to choose next. Like I said, I'm in the middle of this giveaway. I'm in the middle of creating this whole new scholars program. So as much as I'm excited about the podcast, I haven't looked into what's going to be next from that standpoint. So let's talk about our study tip before we get to the answers to our questions. Our study tip for the day is not going to be a study tip at all. It's actually, I keep getting emails from people asking me about my position and their concerns about taking a position similar to mine. And what I, so what I do for a living, aside from the, the, the glamorous um, position of what I have here at Physician Assistant Exam Review, in addition to that, I also work a, uh, a normal job. So what that means is I am a first assistant in the OR at a small community hospital. And what I do is I'm five days a week in the OR. I'm, do, I'm performing surgery. I do almost no medicine whatsoever. I just really am, am a, a, do surgery. Very technical. Uh, I work in all subspecialties that we have at our hospital. So I do uh, ENT, I do GYN, I do C-sections, I do plastics, I do orthopedics. Um, did I say ENT? Uh, whatever. So we do whatever surgeons need help at our facility. They simply sign up and say, I need a PA on this case. And there's a handful of us who then get assigned to the cases and we distribute those. And uh, so that's what I do. I'm in the OR five days a week doing surgery, which I love doing surgery. That's really what I went to school for. That's why I wanted to be a PA. Uh, so I'm thrilled to be in my position. The questions I get from people are usually, how do you get a job like that? How, how, can, how do I get into school or into surgery as a new graduate? I hear it's really hard, which I disagree with, but I don't want to talk about that today. And then the other question I get is, what if I lose all my skills? What if I forget about medicine? What if I, if I take a job where I'm just in the OR, I'm just doing orthopedics, then what happens uh, down the road? And all I can answer these, all, the answer these questions with is what I've done, what I would do differently, and, and sort of just my opinion. I, I, I can give advice, but I'm not going to tell you what's best for you. But I can certainly say, tell you my experiences and what I would do in, in this situation, what I would do over again. So before I graduated, I worked, I, I did a rotation in the ER and I loved being in the ER, right? So you're running around, you're getting a stitch, you're getting to see people. I, I just really enjoyed it. It was toward the end of my, my, uh, toward graduation for me. So I was feeling really comfortable. And one of the docs I worked with was saying that, you know, you should really spend some time in the ER or in a family practice right out of school before you go and specialize in anything, whether that's dermatology, whether, you know, in anything. And his point was you want to be well-rounded and have a good background and really get that knowledge base solidified. And I thought that was a great idea. I really did. I really thought that made a lot of sense to me. And then I went and got a job in foot and ankle surgery with an orthopedic surgeon and focused 100% on foot and ankle surgery and got away from medicine. And although I think he had a really good point about grounding yourself and, and really solidifying that information, for me, I, and still to this day, I'm, I'm not going to wind up in a family practice. That's just not <laughs> what's going to happen? Could it happen? I guess so. Maybe I'm not going to be in a pediatric practice. I'm not going to be in an office setting. So for me, yes, have I lost some of the things I've learned? Absolutely. But on the other hand, some of it doesn't, it doesn't matter. 
Um, you're never going to hold on to everything that you learned. I mean, you already have forgotten tons of things, right? But even by the end of PA school, you don't remember what you learned at the beginning of PA school. You're always going to be forgetting and relearning and relearning and relearning. So even if I had grounded myself, let's say I took that year in the ER and now I'm in practice for 10 years, would I retain what I learned in the ER at that point? And would it be valuable to me? It may be. And maybe I would hold on to it, but I'm not so sure. I don't know that it would be as valuable as it would be having that extra year of experience in surgery doing what I'm doing now. So as much as I think that that's a great idea and I think maybe it'd be good for you, I don't see how it was it is or was a detriment to me to go right into a specialty and into into a very specific subspecialty. I was in orthopedics and I was only in foot and ankle orthopedics. That has not hindered my career one bit. That has not hindered my ability to practice medicine. It has not hindered my ability to get a job and it won't in the future. Uh, so like I said, so I don't see that as necessarily a problem. And then people say, well, what about for the exam? How will you, you know, do, what, is it going to be hard if you don't know? Everyone has to restudy. Um, I actually was reading a study. I have a study. It's done a number of years ago. And they, what they were looking at was do people who practice in a subspecialty do better on the pan re in that subspecialty topic, right? So let's say you work in infectious disease. Do the people who work in infectious disease score higher on the pan re in the ID section of the test? And the answer was no, they don't. They score exactly the same. In fact, they, they usually score pretty close to how they did on the pants because the questions on the test are based out of the books. They're based out of, out of the best practices and, and those sorts of things. It's not really based out of clinical practice. There, there are some variations. There are some things that are different. There are some judgment calls you might make or whatever, or some new information that you have that hasn't made it to the test yet. So it doesn't, it doesn't change. What, what you need to be able to do for the test for your PANRI is to be able to study the information that's in the book. Specializing or not specializing, it helps a little, sure. Uh, I think taking the surgery exam for me probably helped me that I was in surgery, but I don't think it's a huge factor. I think you need to learn how to study to pass that exam. I don't think you need to choose a career path or spend a year or two doing something to make sure you pass your test down the road, especially now that it's a 10 years, it's 10 years away. Uh, I don't think I would get a job based on a test that's 10 years away that I needed to remember things for. I just don't think that that's a really good plan. So anyway, that let's wrap that up there and just say that to me, I jumped right into a specialty. I have no complaints. I don't look back and regret it one bit. Um, in fact, I think it's made me a much better practitioner in my specialty that I went ahead and did that. That may be different for you, but that's a, very much the way that I feel about it. All right, let's answer our questions. The symptoms of occlusion and the seven P's is our first one. The seven P's, pain, pallor, pulselessness, paresthesias, poikilothermia, just means cold, and paralysis. What's the width we... What width does it start to make sense to operate on an aortic aneurysm? At what width does it make sense to operate on an aortic aneurysm? We talked about greater than 5 centimeters. The risk goes up to between 5 and 10% per year will rupture. What's the treatment for giant cell arteritis? Treatment for giant cell arteritis. You absolutely have to know high-dose prednisone. And then if you can remember 40 to 60 milligrams, that's great. But you must remember high-dose prednisone. And then describe the typical patient with an aortic aneurysm. Describe the typical patient with an aortic aneurysm. Men over 70. 
let's throw in one last one. What was our typical age group for people with giant cell arteritis? Do you remember? Over 55, over 55. Great. So that wraps up cardiovascular. Super exciting to be done with this section. Can't wait to see what's coming next. Um, this is, um, uh, just as excited as you are to see what we're going to jump into uh, next. I know some of the shows have, like I said last week, have been falling out the back end of the 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 podcast feed. So maybe I think it was ENT or I forget what something fell out the, on the other end. So maybe I'll try to go back and redo that so that it's available for you guys. But anyway, we'll jump into that uh, in two weeks. You'll go ahead and see what's going on there. But between now and then, one is good luck to anyone taking their exam this week. Absolutely good luck to you. And two is go ahead and go over and sign up for that giveaway. I want to make sure that you get your chance, your opportunity to win all that amazing stuff, including the Rutgers review package. So definitely go check that out at physicianassistantexamreview.com backslash give. And then to check out what's going on, uh, what's new and exciting for me and for the whole community at physicianassistantexamreview.com backslash new. And you can go ahead and see what's going on there and get some more information about what's coming uh, and the exciting things happening there. So anyway, good luck. Take care. uh, And I'll see you again real soon. 